Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. A couple of years ago, a new phrase was added to the Webster Dictionary. Uh, dumpster fire, uh, which, uh, you know, up and, it'd been kicking around for a few years before that. But um, it, uh, when 2020 rolled around, I think we sort of collectively all decided that that was the year that was going to be called the dumpster fire year. Like it would forever have the dumpster fire award. And so there were, you know, memes and pictures and all of that. And then 2021 rolls around. And people said, you know, maybe 2020, 2021 could be dumpster fire years. And then 2022 rolls around. I saw a shirt, and they're just going right through it. 2020, 2020, <laughs> next year, early 2023. And we're going to just keep seeing uh, if this dumpster fire lights the one of the very next year. Things have been tough, and it doesn't really look like things are going to be getting much easier. A poet captured this idea some years ago. It went like this. He said, Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray. Some of you are already with me. (laughs) South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio. Yep, someone got it. Uh, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, television. North Korea, you knew knew the Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Rosenberg's, H-Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pan Moon John, Brando, the king and I, and the catcher in the rye. Eisenhower, vaccine. England's got a new queen. Marciano, Liberace, Santayana, goodbye. Let's do the chorus. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. I was going to sing it, and Trevor said he would cut the mic. So I covered 40 years of dumpster fires. That's, that's what that song was about. He just ran right through it and he covered all of these incredible crises that had been happening over four decades. And I think the first Christians in, that's 2,000 years ago, the very first Christians would have totally related with us. If you think about the world that they were born into, it was a very difficult time in history. World powers were forcibly taking control of smaller nations. Poverty was widespread. Homelessness was rampant throughout the Roman Empire. Food insecurity made many live hand to mouth. The Romans had famously polluted the air over Europe with their mining activities. And because of their agricultural methods, They had caused these widespread die-offs in their streams and in their freshwater lakes. There were deep 
racial and political rivalries. Throughout the occupation, the Romans committed war crimes against the Jewish people. There were scandals in their religious institutions. There was this growing socioeconomic divide between the rich and the poor. This is 2,000 years ago. And as the widows of society languished on handouts, the, the super rich, they had, they had mega yachts. Okay, I'm making up the mega yachts thing. But, but they had really cool chariots. And they did have summer homes and they had winter homes that they would flee to when the cities were struck by pandemics. This is the Roman world of 2,000 years ago. And these early Christians, they were outcasts of the Roman government and they were attacked by their own ethnic people. They could find no peace anywhere. And this culminated in their beloved teacher, their rabbi, receiving a death sentence. And when capital punishment was meted out then, it was a very public execution. And after his execution, the first Christians, they faced arrest, beatings from the mob and the state, and even death at the hands of religious zealots. You could say that 30 AD was a real dumpster fire year. And then, and then, unexpectedly, with joy unspeakable, a dead man came back to life. And he crashes into this new scene and he says to them, peace. In the midst of everything, he says, peace be with you. Three times after the resurrection, Jesus greeted his followers in that same way. Peace be with you. And this greeting, it's, it's much more than uh, you know, us saying hello. It's not like a God bless you when you sneeze or anything like that. Right? You know, you've heard maybe of the Hawaiian aloha. It carries kind of some ideas of wholeness uh, to it. And it's more like that, but even more so. This idea of shalom, this idea of, uh, of peace be with you. It's more like the Vulcan greeting, long, live long and prosper. You guys know this one, right? The live long. All right, so here's the deal. You know when you go to church and they pass the peace? And you know, it's like every church does it differently, but you go visit other churches. If you visit any other churches in the next year, I'm asking that you would, instead of like passing the peace and waving and doing whatever they're doing with their COVID regulations and all that, I need you to do the Vulcan greeting. And I just, I want you to say, you got to do it straight face. So here are the rules. If you do the Vulcan's hand signal and you say peace, and you say live long and prosper, instead of passing the peace, I will give you five bucks. To the first person who does that, I will give you five bucks. But here are the rules. You got to do the hand signal. You got to say it with a deadpan face. You got to say it to at least three people. And you got to record their facial expressions for me. And then, I, and then you got to let me use it in the next Easter message. Um, and so five bucks, it's yours. I got it right here in my pocket if you go and do this sometime this year. Now, for the ancient Greeks, peace was really the, the cessation of war. If war wasn't happening, there was peace. And then what happened in that peace was humanity prospered. And so that was kind of where this idea really got, took root. 
But in the Old Testament, the Jewish thinkers, they really filled this picture out. So it became not just the, the end of war, but it became the, the ending of everything that could disrupt human flourishing. Everything that, it was the end of anything that would cause you angst, anxiety, pain, suffering, anguish, or anything. And if there was shalom, if there was peace, if there was a blessing of peace, it carried with it the idea of of safety and freedom from care. And, it, and even it came to, to represent rest, the conditions needed so that you can truly rest. And it was such a beautiful concept and it became so very important. You could think about it even in the terms of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. This is, by the way, the Garden of Eden for us this morning. And so you could, Adam and Eve are in the garden and the way it was described, everything was good and then it was even very good. And in the garden, they were at peace. And so the, the idea of getting back to that kind of a piece, it, it was woven throughout the Old Testament and, and even made its way into the prophets, so much so that in the time of Moses, this became the ultimate way to bless the nation, that the, that the face of God would give them peace. It became so important to the Jewish people that it started butting up against the ideas related to mercy when we don't deserve it and forgiveness when we haven't earned anything. It even, it even started to capture this idea, the whole of salvation. And so all of human flourishing and the ending of all of the wickedness and the evil and, and the wiping away of every tear and the walking with God in the cool of the garden, that was peace. And that's why this word shows up 91 times in the New Testament. And five of them show up in the text that we're looking at here in the Gospel of John. So what do we learn about this idea of peace, this promise of peace from our text in John 20? So it says, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The followers of Jesus, their whole world had just been turned upside down and now they were in hiding because the world is broken and it's a threatening place. And so they were hiding because now this is the way we have to respond to a harsh world. It's actually what we saw in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they decided to go about their life their own way without God. And the text in Genesis, it tells us that that they were in hiding, that God came looking for them. After they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God came into the garden and it said they were hiding. That's what fear does to us. We hide. So Cheryl and I, we had um, an iguana uh, in college because they didn't let uh, pets in the dorms. And so we figured we could hide an iguana. So we bought a ficus tree and we stuck the iguana in the tree during the day in case the RAs came in and they want to like do like a little spot search. And so they wouldn't see the iguana because she was kind of hiding in there. So she, her name was Beth because, you know, lizard and that's Liz and Liz is Elizabeth and Beth. And so that was her name, Beth. And so Beth uh, was, uh, you know, when we got her, she was a tiny little thing, and, and she kept growing, of course, as lizards tend to do, especially iguanas. And uh, we would travel back and forth to go home for the summer and vacations, but we didn't want to, like, pay the money because we were college students and, and dirt poor. And, and so we, uh, we just we decided that we came up with an ingenious way to travel with Beth. 
we had a carry-on bag that was just a box, an empty box. And we would go to the airport and we would send the bag empty through the x-ray machine. Because if you put her in the bag, you'd see the little skeleton and stuff like that. We figured because we didn't know how any of these things worked anyway. But, uh, you know, we'd send her through the x-ray machine, but we couldn't. So we send the empty box. But that means we have to get Beth through security. So we would wear her under our, our, my shirt. And so, like, when she was little, it was not that really big a deal because, like, she was this tiny little lizard. We'd stick her in there and kind of, but then she got bigger and she got, when she was about three feet and we were still doing this, we would, we had the head, you could see it like this, like I had some sort of a growth and we would wrap the tail all the way around to the back. And, uh, and so anyway, this was, uh, we get around the, and then once we get past security, which we did quite a few times, uh, we would actually then put her back into the, the carry-on bag and leave the cracked open a little bit for some air uh, for her. And then we would just sit with her like on the ground, not in the overhead, but on the ground in the seat uh, in front of us. Perfect plan. Well, I dozed off one flight. And, uh, and so I wake up and I see the the next to me, I see this, and by the way, like Beth, she used to hang out with our cat, Catherine, but you can see she's starting to get a little bit of size there, so based on the cat size, like, you know, she's already like getting like this big, so this is about the size where we decided we were white knuckled, this guy sitting on the airplane white knuckled, and I'm looking down, and I look up at him, and he's staring down at my feet, and I'm like, wow, this is awkward, and I look down, and Beth is working her way out of the bag. And so she's got her half of her body up over the top like she's going to bolt. And if anybody has seen a lizard run, this is like, a, I'm like, oh, we're dead. We're dead. And so I jumped out. I grabbed her. I stuffed her back in. I zipped it up. And I'm like, please don't say anything. Please don't say anything. And eventually he kind of loosened up. But he was like phobic level fear. Stare. Like this is like snakes on a plane kind of a thing. But he was like absolutely out of his mind with fear. You know, I think there is that kind of white-knuckled fear and anxiety now more at any moment that I remember in my life. And Jesus, he speaks into that and he says, there is peace when we fear. He enters into that closed room and he says, listen, pandemic and political and societal polarization and war in Europe and inflation and fake news and existential threats to the planet and Jesus, he just steps right into this moment and he says, peace. The Washington Post says, you guys don't understand, there's this like mental health epidemic happening with our teens. It's hopelessness and it's, it's gripped them in such this powerful way. They say social isolation and frazzled parents and cruelty of social media, 44% of high school kids today are reporting persistent sadness and hopelessness. 44% persistent. This is something that, would, that, that, that brings fear, it strikes fear into the hearts of parents and ought to strike fear into the hearts of a society that cares for the next generation and what is going on with them. And, and, and there's broader sense of social disruption. The New York Times today, instead of Happy Easter, they're like, violence is surging, crime is rampant. I'm like, wow. That's amazing. You guys run with that as your lead. That was the head of war, by the way. Uh, when, and, and you think about this, and they say that uh, there was one writer, he said that all of this is giving even normal citizens a moral holiday so that people are starting to act out in ways increasingly violent. They say, you know what's heading up into the right? Drug use, alcoholism, car crashes from, from road rage, blood pressure, all up into the right. That's 
our claim to fame right now. In this broken world, it piles on fear and it exacerbates anxiety and it breeds hopelessness. And Jesus, he steps into that moment. He crashes through these locked doors and he goes, no, no, peace. And this isn't, this isn't, this is, this isn't just a hello. This is a promise. This is a blessing. This is Jesus praying upon his followers peace in the midst of our greatest fears. We also see that he promises peace when we doubt. So Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. The serpent comes onto the scene. He's unexpected character in the narrative. And he tells them one of the very first things he's going to say. He's going to say to them, did God really say? Did God really say? And then, well, the reason God's doing that is because he knows that if you eat of this tree, that you're actually going to get really smart. He's holding out on you. This, this fruit that, that I'm offering you, if you eat it, God, you're going to find out what God's been holding back. You think God's good, but he isn't actually good. And doubt starts to churn up in that first couple's heart. When Jesus first appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't with them. A week later, we're told that the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, some of you here this morning, you have always been doubting kinds of people. I, I had quite a few years from end of high school into early years of college where I just kind of rejected the whole Christian thing. I just didn't buy it. I didn't understand it. I didn't think it made any sense. I didn't trust the Bible. Who could trust the, the book that old? And the, the book is the one that we learn about Jesus. So why am I going to trust that guy? And besides, he wants me to change my lifestyle. Like, there's, there's better good out there than what he is offering. It took me quite a few years to work through a lot of that doubt and kind of do the, the work and the research. And that was my path. But there are some of you today who you've always sort of believed. Belief kind of came easier to you in some ways. But the last few years have caused you to doubt in a different sort of a way. Now you're just saying, what is going on? Like, how, is, how could there be a good God? And how could he let these kinds of things happen? I don't understand this kind of a, I, I kind of grew up on this idea, you might be saying, that, you know, there was health, wealth, and prosperity for all Americans and for all Christians. And now, you know, all of that, you know, that, that you know, preacher garbage that is out there in, in, in the, the, the ether out there, it's, it's shown to be lies and false because there's suffering and there's heartache. And how is there, so you start to doubt and you start to wonder, what does this mean? And Jesus, he's, he's promising us peace when we doubt. It's as if he's telling Thomas, listen, Thomas, what's really going on here is you're doubting my goodness. I said I was leaving. I said I was coming back. I said I wasn't going to leave you as orphans. I said that this was the beginning of the restoration of all things. And Thomas, you believed it at one point, but you no longer believe it. You're, you're doubting my goodness. Adam and Eve. He calls to them in the garden. Where are you? Thomas, come. Come, look. You want to you question my goodness? Come look at the marks that I bear for you. Come close here, up under my arm. 
come look at my love etched in my side by a Roman spear. You're churning about in these doubts. And Jesus is saying, come close and look at my wounds. It'll set everything else in perspective because you'll know the love that I have for you. It's been proven with the pouring out of my blood. There's another scene that is important for us. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. This is, look at this, she's, she's in mourning. She hasn't seen the risen Christ yet. And so she peeks in, she sees two guys sitting in the tomb. You'd think that would have, like, angels. And you'd think she would have been like, wait, hey, something weird's going on here. Instead, she's clinging to her grief. She can't, this, this doesn't even jostle her out of her grief. And it says at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What is, who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. This idea here is so cool because she thinks he's the gardener. Now, it's really interesting because in the Gospel of John, in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible is Genesis, and here's John's Gospel. John has all of these echoes and mirrors of the book of Genesis. And so if you read Genesis and John together, you're going to see all of these cool parallels that keep going back and forth. And I think this little scene right here is a reminder to us that in, in the Garden of Eden, the first man who represented the whole of humanity, Adam, he was there to tend the garden. He was the first of the gardeners. And here in another garden is Jesus, the representative of all of humanity. And in fact, Mary wasn't too far wrong because Jesus was in fact the gardener of sorts in this new garden tending to this garden. And so I think there's a cool little echo, but she still can't be wrenched away from her grief until Jesus says to her, Mary. And something about the, the tone of his voice and something about the familiar sound and something about the tenderness, she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. She clung to him. See, a few chapters before this, Jesus had promised peace to his followers, but Mary had no peace because she only had her grief, her grief that Jesus was dead. And so she fixates on this idea. I have to find the body. Where is the body? They took the body. And that's the only thing she can, she can think about. Because in her world, if she can find a body and if she can have a tomb that she can go to for the rest of her life and mourn her Savior's death, if she could do that, that would give her some tiny peace. A little bit. Just, a, just enough to help her survive this brutal world. And it's as if the angels are chiding her. Who are you looking for? What is it you're hoping to find here? Are you looking for peace? Here? In a tomb? Is that really where you're going to find this thing that you're, you're longing for, Mary? Adam and Eve... They were in the garden. They took a bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because they wanted a better life. That was the promise that the serpent had given to them. If you take of this fruit everything, it's going to be so much better for you. This is the real life. And then they found out that everything broke. 
Then their relationships got, got fractured. And then childbearing became an, a drudgery and a fear and a risk. And all of work lost its joy for humanity. And then the very next generation, Cain, her son, kills her other son, Abel. You can hear Eve's grief. This is what we've done when we've chosen to go our own way. They lost so much, covered with shame. They lit a fire that day. Joel got it wrong. He says, there's always been a fire burning as long as the world's been turning. No, that for, for a while there was a garden and it was beautiful and it was right and humanity lived in it with, in, in peace with God. And then we struck a match that day and it has burned throughout the centuries. And so we grieve loss. We grieve the people that we lost during COVID and we grieve the friendships that are damaged during all of these political upheavals and we grieve the misery that's happening around the planet. We grieve getting old. I asked Cheryl, I said, are you going to love me when I'm old and wrinkly? And she says, of course I do. <laughs> it's like, what the? It's not right. You don't do that. See, but here, Mary, she really only understands her grief. And she embraces this notion of what will bring her peace. Finding the body of Jesus and the angels, they chide her and they point her toward true peace. And then when we cling to this or that in, in hopes of somehow alleviating this grief in some small measure, we cry out, we, we mourn with the angels. And they say, why are we crying? And we're like, well, they've, they've taken away our Lord. They've taken away... The things that we love, the people that we need, the dreams that are shattered, and all of these things, the hopes that, that, that we, we had that are dashed. And in that very moment, Jesus, he says, Mary, Mary. And he's calling each and every one of us like he did in the garden for Adam and for Eve. And he's like, you know, Charlie and Jen, and come, come. Your grief isn't your greatest story. I'm offering you peace. When he offers us peace in the midst of our grief, he speaks into this very moment that we are living in today. He speaks into our hearts in a way and he bypasses all of the other things that, 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 that struggle to, to kind of break through and shine in our lives. And he's breaking past all of these things and he's saying, I'm going to get to core, the core all of the brokenness that you are grieving, the loss of the garden. I am, at, I am here promising you the restoration of all of these things. Now there's one other promise that's subtle in our text. It's actually the culmination. It's subtle, but I think it's the culmination of the whole book of John and really the culmination of the whole of the Bible. So in the Garden of Eden, God, he said that if you decide to try and live your life apart from me, If you disobey and you try to leave me on the outside of your life, then in that day, you will certainly die. There will be grief and there will be misery. There, there will be fear and there will be death. In that day, you will certainly die. Now, there's this weird little moment that we see in our uh, little talk with Mary here. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white. This is a weird little detail. Two angels in white. She doesn't seem to even notice them. 
seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. John does this. He leaves all of these odd little details for us. And we're like, I don't even know what that means. And the commentators, you read them, they're like, I don't even know what this means. This is all so weird. And then and some start, have been starting to speculate and think through and look for other kind of linguistic echoes. Because of what John does throughout his whole gospel, he talks about this, the, the head covering that Jesus had and how it had been neatly folded up. It's a veil of sorts. And you see, in, in the book of Exodus and many other places in the Old Testament, there's all of these little things that are happening. There's when angels are appearing and there's veils and there's sacred things that can't be touched here and there's sacred things that can't be touched there. And I think the reader of John, the Jewish readers of, of the Gospel of John, would have had their, their memories sort of tickled a little bit and they would have thought about the temple the tabernacle. They would have said, listen, here's the temple, a diagram of the temple of Jerusalem. This is actually the tabernacle. And here is the, the outer courts they had over here. And then there was an inner court. And then back here was this thing they called the Holy of Holies. And inside the whole, this is the most sacred place. Only the high priest would go in here once a year uh, to offer atonement for the sins of all the people so the people could be forgiven so that they would not die. And inside was the Ark of the Covenant, which you all know because of Indiana Jones. And so the Ark of the Covenant was this awesome thing inside where the tablets, the, the, the actual law of Moses was inside here and some other very, very cool things. So you have to read the Bible to find out the rest. And, and so this is the Ark of the Covenant. And this section up here is called the Mercy Seat. And so on the most holy day of the Jewish year, the high priest, only once a year and only the high priest, because remember, he is the representative of the whole people of God. So just like Adam was the whole, the representation of the whole people of God, now the high priest, this one time a year, they've killed an animal, they've taken its blood, and he alone is going to go back into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, and he is going to sprinkle blood right here on the top of the mercy seat. And when he sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat, the nation is granted forgiveness of their sins. The sins that they've committed, the sins they didn't even know they committed. The wrath of God is turned away so that the curse from the Garden of Eden, the surely in that day you shall die, that curse is kept at bay. And you don't have to fear God's judgment and his wrath because you're, the mercy seat has taken a blood Offering. And now, of course, the Jewish people thought that this was the actual exchange that took place. This is, but this they found out later was only a hint as to a greater sacrifice. Because right here on the mercy seat, God gave very specific instructions that on each side of the mercy seat were these two angels. One at the head, one at the foot, you might be able to say. It's as if the angels are sitting there in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot of where the body of Jesus laid because the true Adam, our perfect Adam, our real high priest has entered into the tomb. He spilled his blood on the cross and this priest is taking this offering and he is sprinkling it there in the tomb between the two angels behind the veil granting us forgiveness. Because Jesus, he promises us peace even when we die. We don't need to fear death anymore. This is, again, Billy Joel, he got this part all wrong. Everything, most, everything else he got pretty good. This part he got all wrong because at the very end of the song, he switches his chorus. 
he changes it. It's, it's, You've got to listen to it later. But it says, it says, we didn't start this fire, but when we are gone, it will go on and on and on and on. He repeats it like eight times. It's half the song, I think. He just goes on and on. He thinks that's it. He thinks this is our lot in life. He says the end of this story is humanity continuing to suffer for a thousand more generations, maybe forever, on and on and on and on. And Jesus, he crashes on the scene and he goes, I have beaten your final enemy, death. And so now humanity can have peace. No need to doubt, no need to fear. He meets us in our grief. Jesus, he is promising all of this to us. The renewal of all things. John, he also wrote the end of the book of Revelation. Where everything is remade. And what was in the garden is now in the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. And all of humanity made new. If they've decided to trust in their savior. To stop doubting and to believe. To have faith in the midst of fear. Anxiety. He promises us peace. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come here today to celebrate Easter and and to remember, Father, what you have done for us. This high priest of Jesus who laid down, willingly laid down his life to have his heart pierced, to have his blood spilled, So that he could take this blood and sprinkle it in the mercy seat for us. Father, this promise of peace, it's a blessing. It's Jesus praying for us. And I'm asking, Lord, that each person here would hear the voice of Jesus calling their name. That each person here would hear their name on Jesus' lips as he blesses them with peace. As he says, here, now, in this life, in the midst of crazy circumstances, I'm giving you my peace through the power of the Spirit and through the power of my resurrected life. I am defeating death and I am making all things new. I pray, Lord, that you would give them your peace. Amen. Jesus stood among them said, peace be with you. The very first word the disciples heard muttered from the lips of their resurrected Lord was peace. Peter, James, John, and the rest restlessly waiting, commiserating, deliberating, just days ago debating which of them is the best, now speculating who's going to be next. They got through to Judas and used him to do this and ruthlessly proved just how far they could go. But the disciples didn't know. Oh no, the disciples didn't know how far this could go. They knew that the Pharisees' fears were mounting. They knew that some of their peers were doubting. They saw the collusion. They had no delusions. They knew that the threats were sincere and hounding. They were coming for Jesus. 
and with vigilant insolence and indiscriminate militants, they protest his innocence, conjure up incidents, belittle his miracles, call them coincidence, claim that he's dangerous. The peril is imminent. We can't just imprison him. That won't diminish it. The risk is significant. We just have to finish him. All of this, the disciples knew. They knew the people sought Jesus' demise. They saw the murderous rage in their eyes. They heard them connive and strategize. None of these things came as a surprise. Still, the disciples didn't realize that in the end, their Savior dies. Friday was so violent. And Saturday, silent. Sunday, they gathered. Their world rocked. Windows shut. Doors locked, hiding in terror as they watched the clock. A shepherdless flock huddled in shock, dreading the moment their opponent might knock at the door. We can't go outside. They're going to be on us. One of them suggested, is this not what Jesus promised? Another chimed in, has anyone seen Thomas? And into their fear, Jesus appeared, spoke peace to their hearts and showed them his scars. The disciples rejoiced and Jesus lifted his voice to repeat, peace be with you. The second word the disciples heard muttered from the lips of their resurrected Lord was peace. Now, Thomas had missed this and resisted the witness of his brothers and sisters. Some call it doubt. He called it wisdom. Insisted to see the Lord's scars for himself. His mind was at war battling for reality, balancing practicality, the finality of fatality, challenged by what his pals had seen. Is it reasonable to receive the testimony of the bereaved without questioning and assessing before acquiescing to believe? Thomas's hope had been wrecked once already. He can't afford to be naive. He put all his eggs in a basket that was carried out in a casket. Now they're asking him to accept that Jesus rose from the dead and he wishes he could grasp it, but the story's too fantastic and the doubts are winning out and the battle in his head. And into uncertainty, Jesus returned to speak peace to his mind. Peace be with you, Jesus cried. And Thomas replied, my Lord and my God, as he put his hands in Jesus' side. The very first word doubting Thomas heard muttered from the lips of his resurrected Lord was, peace, peace be with you. It may sound like a greeting, but when peace is repeating from the death-defeating Jesus, it bears a different meaning. It's not a wish for which he's pleading. It's a decree he's guaranteeing. Show me your doubts, he says, and I'll show you my wounds. Show me your fears, 
and I will show you my empty If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.